Amen. Boy, those slides were beautiful. I mean, then he, I don't know if you guys heard, uh, he mentioned right at the beginning there that all of those were taken on their farm. So just fantastic. Uh, so I want you to think this morning as we open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13, when's the last time you felt the unmistakable presence of God in your life? I mean, an experience so powerful, so tangible, so real that you had no doubt God was there. You know, we talk about God's presence all the time. I mean, we are, after all, Christians, right? We're churchgoers, so we know what God's presence means. You know, He's here with us. You know, sometimes we'll even pray for Him to be with us, even though we know theologically, or should know, that He's always with us because He's omnipresent, so He cannot not be with us. But we know what we mean when we say that. When we say, you know, God be with us, or Holy Spirit be with us, or move among us, really we're just saying that we want, we want to acknowledge your presence, recognize your presence, and we really want to just be close uh, to you. But can you think of a time when God's presence was especially noticeable in your life? I think the reality is we overlook His presence far too often. I mean, we have so many distractions. You know, if you think about back in the early days of, of creation, when people walked and talked with God, think of Adam and Eve, for example, or even after that. You know, you think of in the days of Noah or the days of Abraham. I just feel like as time has gone on, even though we have more privileges today in God's plan of the ages as believers in the church age, the bride of Christ, than any other age before, we actually do far less with those privileges. We actually acknowledge and recognize His presence uh, more often than not. We forget that the almighty creator of the universe is right here with us. I mean, think about that. What does that mean exactly? I don't know if you're familiar with the name Jakob Ludwig Felix Mendelssohn Bartholdi. What a name, right? I wonder what it would be like to have five names, you know? I, 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 most of us only have two names, or three if you count our last name. I guess, I don't know if his parents just couldn't make up their minds, so they had this list, and they said, well, we'll just throw all of them in there. We can't decide or, or what it was. But you must be really important to have, have five names. Jacob Ludwig Felix Mendelssohn Bartholdi. You may not know him by his full name, but you'll know his work. And I bet uh, you know Jeff and Kim and some of our other uh, musicians certainly know him well. He's best known simply as Mendelssohn. Mendelssohn, a 19th century German composer, pianist, organist, conductor. His highly acclaimed works include, obviously, symphonies, but also concertos, piano music, organ music, even chamber music. Now, you'll recognize one of his pieces, the melody for the Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And then, as the Lord so often does during rehearsal this morning, Jeff on not even knowing that I was going to use Mendelssohn as an illustration, brings up Mendelssohn. And I said, funny you should mention him. We're going to talk about him this morning. And he mentioned, was it And Can It Be is another hymn that he that we wrote. I love that hymn. I didn't realize that he wrote the, the lyrics to that, we think, anyway. But Mendelssohn, there's a great story about Mendelssohn. He once visited a cathedral in Europe, and they had just bought a new organ, a massive pipe organ. And the guy whose job it was to take care of that organ 
didn't recognize Mendelssohn. So Mendelssohn asks, uh, sir, may I play this organ? Uh, by the way, by that time, Mendelssohn already had achieved pretty much world fame. But the caretaker of the organ said, oh, no, 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 this, this is a brand new organ. We can't allow anyone to play it. Well, Mendelssohn asked again, please, sir, may I, may I play the organ? No, I'm sorry, you, you don't understand. This is a million-dollar organ. We can't let you play it. Well, like the persistent widow in, in Jesus' day, Mendelssohn tried yet again, please, please let me play. Well, it worked. To, to get rid of the visitor, the man said, okay, you can play for just a minute. So Mendelssohn sits down and starts playing. And music like the man had never heard started coming through the pipes of that organ. He'd never experienced such harmonious sounds in all of his life. He said, Mr., who are you? And Mendelssohn introduced himself, and the man just stared at him with his mouth open, now recognizing who it was that stood in front of him, none other than the world-famous Felix Mendelssohn. The caretaker felt embarrassed to think that he had been foolish enough to forbid Mendelssohn from playing the organ. He just didn't realize who was in the cathedral. You know, as I was thinking about this this week, and this was one of those weeks where I really, the Lord put on my heart early on Sunday night, actually even to the end of last week, kind of where I was going to go with this next couple of verses. So I've really been thinking a lot about the presence of the Lord. I confess I don't think about it enough. We all don't. We should think about His presence far more often than we do. But we ought to be embarrassed that we don't recognize the presence of God in our lives and give Him the right to have His way. As the writer of Hebrews is winding down this letter, you know, we're kind of coming to the end. This is our 30th message in this series that we've been in for the last year. Um, and we've got a couple more at least. Um, but as he's winding it down, he prays for his readers. You know, it's like a good preacher who brings the sermon to a close with a prayer. Now, we talked about prayer last week. We talked about how he asked his own readers, the original recipients of the letter, to pray for him, which was pretty cool. And we kind of looked at some principles of prayer and just were reminded about the privilege and the, uh, really the essence of what prayer is really all about. But in the two verses that we're going to focus on this week, the writer actually prays for his readers, so it's just the opposite. And he prays in his prayer, he reminds them of God's presence and the power that comes with it. You know, more than ever before, these first century Jewish Christians needed God's presence. They needed to be reminded that the almighty, all-powerful God of the universe the one and only triune God, the, the one who sent His only Son to die for them and pay their sin penalty, that He was with them in the midst of their trials, in the midst of their persecution, and that He provides great power for them as they face these tough times. You remember it was a very difficult time in the early church, the roughly 67 to 69 A.D. The church had been around about 30 years since Christ had been crucified. And the Roman uh, Empire was really ratcheting up the persecution against Christians. And at that time, the Jewish people, uh, unbelieving Jews and the Jewish leaders, the same ones that crucified our Lord, were still sort of in cahoots with Rome. 
And it was the Christians that were being made the scapegoats. It was the Christians that were being burned at the stake and persecuted. And that's the whole context of Hebrews. It's, it's, a, it's a letter written to Christians who, because of the pressure they were facing, were thinking about reverting back to Judaism as a safe haven. Didn't mean they would lose their salvation. Uh, they would still go to heaven if they died. But faced with pressure, they were really struggling to hang on to their faith, to keep trusting God. They were unaware of His presence and the power that it brings. So I want us to, to think this morning about this question. Do you need God's presence? Maybe you're facing some difficult odds. Everybody brings their own burdens uh, to our weekly assembly here at Plum Creek Chapel. Some of them are known, some of them are not. You know, are, there, are there trials that you're having to bear that are difficult? Feelings maybe that are hard to put into words. If so, this prayer is for you. In this short prayer at the end of his sermon, if you will, the end of his letter, uh, he, he really touches on a lot of the themes that he's been explaining throughout the 13 chapters. But at its core, it's a prayer to God for his readers. And it's a reminder that he is there. He hasn't forsaken us. He hasn't forgotten us. He's here. In God's presence, there is great power. So the first thing we see is God the Father is with us. God the Father is with us. Now most people understand that the eternal creator of the universe exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Even the most uh, you know, unacclimated to biblical truth kind of knows that you just you hear it you see it it's called the doctrine of the trinity and the doctrine of the trinity is a standard for biblical orthodoxy in fact anyone who denies the doctrine of the trinity is a heretic by strict definition uh, because of its nature the the truth about the trinity is is difficult to really describe in fact it's one of the most difficult things to Define because it merges earthly and heavenly truths, right? It's what we call uh, theologically an antinomy, uh, anti-namas against logic or the law. It's something that is tr a biblical truth, plainly taught in Scripture, and yet it's difficult for our human minds to understand how you can be three, uh, yet one. And most definitions, quite frankly, of the Trinity are lacking. They, they make common mistakes in leaning one way or the other, either one, leaning too far toward the three or too far toward the one. I can remember in my PhD comprehensive exams having to define the Trinity. And I bet I labored more over in preparation over expecting and anticipating that question than just about anything else. Because I thought, man, this is so foundational. It's such a basic truth, a standard of orthodoxy. And yet, it, it could trip you up if I misspeak or, uh, or say it wrong. Uh, it's, it's something that's difficult to explain, and certainly we, we don't understand every nuance of it, but we accept it as true. The definition that's kind of become standard is simple, and I've learned the, the fewer the words, the less you end up getting in trouble. It's quite simple. The Godhead exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. We can't really explain it. We just have to state it. 
It's not three forms of God or three representations of God. I mean, that's what you see commonly written, but that's not accurate. There is just one God who ex eternally exists. In other words, there never has been a time when God didn't exist, never will be a time when God doesn't exist. He didn't come into being. He just is. He's in the eternal now, outside of time, space, and matter. And He eternally exists in three persons. So if we go to our text, we see right off the bat, the writer says, Now may the God of peace... So he refers in his prayer, as we should in addressing our prayers, to God the Father. And notice he calls him the God of peace. Now that really seems significant to me. Um, you know, I was thinking about that phrase, God of peace, and I was thinking about all the, the phrases the author could have chosen to address God as he began his prayer. He could have said, Almighty God. God our Heavenly Father, God of all creation, any number of things. But he starts out God of peace because the greatest need in times of trial is for the peace of God. And the writer knew this all too well because he himself was facing the same persecution, the same struggles that his flock, that is the recipients of his letter were facing. And so he knew how elusive peace could be in his own life. You know, how many times have we found, found ourselves, and, I'm, and some of you may be in this place right now, where you're consumed by the struggles, the trials, the unanswered questions, uh, the uncertainty about the future in life. And that robs you of the peace that comes from acknowledging, recognizing, and depending on the very presence of God in your life. It's like we, we shut Him out and we obsess over our circumstances and our mind just races. We've been there. We've all been there. So the writer reminds them that it's the God of peace who is with them. You know, the great Jewish prophet Isaiah, with whom these readers would have been very familiar, probably could have quoted most of the scroll, said in Isaiah 26.3, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. I often quote this verse in uh, you know, text or emails uh, when I know someone is hurting. It, just, it, all, it very frequently pops into my mind because it's been a great encouragement to me through the years just to know if I'll fix my mind on the Lord, and all that He is and all that He's done in our lives, it's going to bring peace. Now, even if you don't know Hebrew, the Hebrew language, most people know the Hebrew word for peace. Anybody know it? Shalom. shalom. Very good. Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. And it's an interesting word, very common, used 236 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. It means peace or completeness, soundness, wellness. I like that idea of being well. Um, in, in fact, sometimes the Hebrew word shalom is translated in our English Old Testament that way, as well. I don't know if you remember the story in 2 Kings 4 of Elisha and the woman from Shunem, the Shunammite woman. If you remember, Elijah used to stay at her house uh, as he would pass through the region and, and uh, got to be friends with her. 
And uh, at one point, her, while he was not there, her son died. And uh, so she tells her husband, I'm going to go see this man of God. She takes off to go find Elisha because she knew Elisha could heal him. And she gets to uh, approaching where Elisha is. Elisha sees her from a far distance off, and he sends his, uh, his servant, Gehazi, to go greet her. And so we pick it up in 2 Kings 4.26. Elisha says, please run now to meet her and say to her. So Gehazi asks the woman, is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with a child? Each one of those is the word shalom. In other words, she was saying, or he was asking, is everything okay? How are you doing? What's up? Everything all right? Now, in the text, it's a fascinating story. We don't have time to to spend a lot of time there, but she answers, yes, it's well, which, of course, it was anything but, but she wanted to get past Gehazi. She wanted to get to the man of God so he could help her. So to expedite things, she says, yeah, 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 you know, it's well. Now, we use that word well a lot, don't we? You know, someone will ask, how are you doing? And instinctively, almost reflectively, reflexively, we'll say, uh, oh, I'm well, or I'm good. I think you're supposed to say I'm well, but we typically say I'm good. <laughs> but is that really the case? You know, sometimes people try to get creative because, you know, saying I'm well seems kind of trite. So you'll hear people say, well, I'm better than I deserve, or I'm blessed. Well, you know, of course you're blessed. We're all blessed. We know that, but that's not the question. <laughs> the question was, how you do it? Are you well? Sometimes we'll ask, how's it going? People will come up with creative things. Well, it's better than a poke in the eye. Yes, thank you for clarifying that. We understand that. But how are you doing? The word shalom implies more than an empty, overused verbal convention. To be well in Hebrew is to be truly at peace, to be complete, sound, confident, content. Basically, to be resting in God's presence. Reminds me of the words of that great hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And I think Jeff referenced this not too long ago, just you know, ad hoc here from the stage when he was leading music. Most of you are familiar with the circumstances surrounding the writing of this hymn. It's, it's hard not to get choked up every time you think about it. But Horatio Spofford was the author of these great lyrics, and he wrote it after some unrelenting series of events in his life. The first two were the death of his four-year-old son, and then not long after that, the great Chicago fire in 1871, which ruined him financially. He'd been a successful lawyer, and he had invested significantly in property all around the area that was destroyed by the great fire. His business interests were further hit by the economic downturn in 1873, at which time he planned to sail to England with his family to help D.L. Moody at an upcoming evangelistic campaign. Well, there was a late change of plans. He sent his family ahead while he was delayed on business related to the fallout and zoning problems over the great Chicago fire. And while crossing the Atlantic Ocean, the ship sank after a collision with another ship, and all four of Spofford's daughters died. His wife Anna survived and sent him the now famous telegram, Saved Alone. Well, shortly afterwards, as Spofford was traveling to meet his grieving wife 
he was inspired to write these words of this hymn as the ship passed near where the daughters had died. You know, only a God of peace can make you well in a time like that. And the writer of Hebrews knew that his readers were struggling. They needed to be able to say, in the words of the famous course, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. He's the God of peace. He's the God of peace. Reminds me of the words that God revealed through Joshua to the children of Israel centuries earlier as they stood on the banks of the Jordan. And he said, Have not I commanded you, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I mean, they were facing giants in the land. They were facing trials of their own. And they needed to be reminded of God's presence. Or we could think of what Paul said to the persecuted Philippians when he wrote those famous words in Philippians 4. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You know, in a way, peace is almost, the peace of God is almost like the Trinity. It's one of those things you know it, but you can't really define it. You just know it. And you just know that peace the way Horatio Spofford knew that peace. You can't conjure it up. You can't define it. You can't give it to someone else. It's got to come from the Lord. And God the Father is with us. There's great power in the peace that He brings. But if we go back to the text, the, the next thing we notice is a reference to the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. And we're reminded that it's the triune God that is with us, not just God the Father, but God the Son is with us. God the Son, of course, has been the central theme of this letter from the very beginning. He opened with these beautiful and powerful words in Hebrews 1.1, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by His Son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. From the very beginning, the writer wanted these readers to know that Jesus Christ is superior to anything and everything Judaism has to offer, whatever they could come up with on their own, what this world has to offer, he is the real deal. He purged their sins when He died and rose again, and He's now waiting at the right hand of the throne of God to come back and take the throne and rule this world and fix all that's broken. So the writer says, going back to the text, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus. He presents Jesus as the living, resurrected one. He brought Him up from the dead. This is a reminder of what He's been saying since the beginning, that Jesus Christ is alive. And then he goes on to call him that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. So who is this Jesus? Well, he's the Lamb of God who shed his blood for us. He opened a new and living way for us that gives us everything we need no matter what we might face. Remember what he said in chapter 4? Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, that is, he didn't stay dead and in the grave, he rose again and is now 
up back in heaven sitting at the right hand of God. He says, because of him, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's what the readers needed. That's what anyone needs who's suffering, struggling, and lacking peace. If you go back to the text, he refers here to the everlasting covenant. That's the new covenant in contrast to the temporary Mosaic covenant, which is no longer in force. But we're in a different day now. And Jesus' blood was superior to any animal blood that was offered under the old covenant. Hebrews 8 reminds us, the writer said, he, 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 but he, now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is the mediator of a better covenant. So he calls him the great shepherd in his prayer. You know, in the New Testament, Jesus is called the great shepherd, the good shepherd, and the chief shepherd. And if you look at the context of each of those three descriptions of our Lord in the New Testament, you see that it focuses on his ministry in the past, in the present, and in the future. Here, he's talking about Jesus as the living shepherd who intercedes in heaven today in the present. That's his ministry today. As the great shepherd, he's with us right now interceding for us. Jesus himself is the one who called himself the good shepherd in John 10, which points us back to his role in the past. From our perspective today, 2,000 years ago, when he took uh, our sins upon him, died and rose again, defeating death, hell, and the grave. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. You know, so the great shepherd is there for us today. The good shepherd died for us in the past. And then Peter calls him the chief shepherd and in reference to his return. It's beautiful. He says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away, pointing us to that time when he comes back. So he is the great shepherd, the good shepherd, the chief shepherd. He's with us in the past, the present, and the future. And Jesus himself in the Great Commission said, Lo, I am with you always. Always. Now why did, the, why did Jesus have to say this? You ever thought about that? Think about the context. This is Matthew 28 when Jesus is saying his words. is after the resurrection, after the post-resurrection appearances, just before uh, we don't know how long before, but in the close proximity to the time that he ascended in Acts chapter 1 to the right hand of the throne of God. And he was about to leave. After being with them bodily for three and a half years and then some after the resurrection, he was about to, to go away. He, he'd no longer be with his disciples in person, face to face, and he wanted them to know that he was still there nevertheless. Right? You know, this, the, the CIA has technology now uh, you know, I'm kind of into this kind of conspiracy stuff. But they have technology now that's pretty amazing that if their agents with, the, with this technology can get to a room within one to two minutes of people leaving the room, they can, they can turn on this device that will show outlines of where people had been standing within the last two minutes. Now, after that, the, the atoms or whatever, the unseen part that's left behind as you move through space is, is dissipated. But if they can get there quick enough, they can tell that within the last two minutes, there was a guy standing there, there was a guy, he was wearing a hat, he had this, he looked this, they can tell that. Now they're not really there, but they can tell they were there. Well, I, I thought about that and I thought about the mental picture of the reality of the presence of the Lord. We can't see Him. And we don't need technology to know this, we have the Word of God to know this. But he's there. And he's not just there for one or two minutes. He's there permanently. 
Notice he says, I am with you always. You know, some of the original recipients of this letter had most likely met Jesus face to face. Uh, they, they maybe sat under his teaching. Maybe they hadn't believed in him until after the resurrection, but he gathered crowds wherever he went. And, and so the writer of Hebrews, getting back to our text, needed them to remember that Jesus Christ is with you. And, and, and that should bring you great peace. Yeah, God with us. That's his name, right, Matthew said. God with us. And that's what you know, the writer of Hebrews says right at the beginning, is that in these last days he has manifested the greatest expression of God, the eternal creator, the triune God, through Christ. But the writer also makes reference to the Holy Spirit, and the rest of this short prayer really kind of touches on that. We see uh, that when the writer uh, prays for the God of peace to raise the great shepherd from the dead, what does he pray for God to do? And verse 21 tells us, he says, I want to that you might make these people complete. May the God of peace make you complete. Now we'll come back in a second to what that means to be made complete, made mature, made perfect in a sense, not perfect the way we think of it. Uh, but first I want to look at how God is going to do this. This is where the Holy Spirit comes into play. How will God make us complete, whatever that means? Well, it's going to be through the Holy Spirit. Notice he says, in every good work to do His will, working in you. See, God is working in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had promised the disciples that the Holy Spirit would be our helper in the upper room just hours before he was betrayed and tried and betrayed and, 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 and arrested and tried and then crucified. And in that upper room, he said, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper. Some translations say counselor or comforter. This is the New King James. It says helper. Notice that he may abide with you forever. Who is that? That's the parakletos, the Holy Spirit. And that word parakletos is used only five times in the entire New Testament. It's used, you know, four times here. And the only other time is when Jesus is called the helper in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. It's translated advocate there. And it says when we sin, we have an advocate, a helper, someone to plead our case and to show that our sins are covered by the blood of Christ. And that's the reason that our sins today can never separate us from the family of God. Someone asked me at the break about eternal security. Uh, and we're teaching on that on Wednesday nights in our midweek Bible study. But nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can undo what was given to us the moment we believed the gospel. Our home in heaven is secure, and we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise forever. But when we sin, it grieves the Holy Spirit, it quenches the Holy Spirit, it breaks fellowship with the Lord, and there's an intimacy that comes with being in right fellowship with the Lord. Not family we're part of the family forever but we can be in or out of a fellowship and that's what first john 2 is talking about and that's one of the ministries of the holy spirit paul tells us in romans 8 that uh, you are not in the flesh but in the spirit if indeed the spirit of god dwells in you it's the spirit of god working in us in first corinthians paul says our bodies are the temple of the holy spirit who is in us in colossians paul prayed a similar prayer to the one we're looking at in Hebrews when he said, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That's 
comes from the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him. He goes on to say in verse 11, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power. See, there's power in God's presence. And that power gives us strength and joy and peace in the midst of trials. And that peace comes from the presence, the ever-presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. In Ephesians, Paul put it this way, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. See, peace, like the peace that these readers needed and like we need at times, some of you even today, is not something that we can go to the store and buy. There's not a pill we can take, though many people think there is, and the world would like to think that there is, like you to think that there is. It's not something you can conjure up. It's got to come through the power of God's presence and the inner working of the Holy Spirit in your life. So if we go back to our text, it's this working in you that's going to make us complete. So what does that mean? What, what is he trying to do specifically for, what is he praying for his readers? That phrase that you see at the top there, make you complete, is actually two words in Greek. The verb, make you, it translated in English, is actually one word, and it's this word, katartizo, katartizo, it means to equip or prepare for use. Uh, sometimes it's translated equip. Your translation may say equip you. Uh, it's used 13 times in the New Testament. And it's really interesting if you, if you kind of look at the etymology of this and the usage even outside the Bible. Sometimes it's used to refer to setting a broken bone. That is to prepare for use. Uh, Judy can probably relate to that. We don't know if it's broken, but there's something damaged in her hand and it's hard to use right now, right? Are you right-handed? Yes. So she can't write. She can't you know, sign things. It's difficult, right? So katartizo is to fix that and to equip and prepare you for use. It's used of a general preparing his army for battle. It's actually used in scripture in Matthew 4.21 of mending a net. Now, you know, I'm not much of a, a fisherman, you know, uh, uh, but, but I, I know enough to know that if you've got a net with a bunch of big holes in it, it's probably not going to be very useful in accomplishing what a fishing net is for, which is catching fish. So it uses that word, katartizo, to mend the net. And, and basically the writer's concern was that his readers be prepared to, to function in life while they're here and to, to handle whatever might come their way. I want to look at, I know it's only used 13 times, but I want to use, look at a couple of places where it's used to kind of help build this idea of equipping or preparing for use. Obviously, it's translated equip in... 2 Timothy 3.16, this is obviously a very well-known passage that the Word of God is profitable to equip us. That's the word katartizo, to equip us. So the Word of God is one of the tools that God uses to make us prepared. Um, in First Peter, uh, we see, May the God of all grace who called us by His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect you. That's the same word, katartizo, means prepare you. And then I love this next one. It's the one the writer of Hebrews used uh, in chapter 11, not too long ago in our study through uh, this, uh, uh, this book. And notice what he says. By faith we understand that the worlds were 
framed by the word of God. That's that word, katertizo. You know, the Bible wasn't written in English. So this is the same exact Greek word that we're looking at here in terms of making you or equipping you in Hebrews uh, 13, verse 20, or 21. But it's translated framed. And this is fascinating to me because it reminds us that when God created the universe, He had a purpose in mind. He prepared the entire world for His use. Right? Katertizo. When we don't understand why things are the way they are, we need to remember God has a plan. He's the one that prepared it intentionally the way it is for His use. Now, I don't understand it, but God framed it that way. And He's working out His plan. You know, I was at a conference at a church one time, and as we were setting up our Not By Works resource tables, I, I noticed near the entrance of the doors to into the auditorium, there was this potted plant that to me looked like it was kind of out in the middle of nowhere, out away from the door and kind of in the way. In fact, I kept having to walk around it to get set up our stuff. So I just kind of picked it up and scooted it back up to the wall. And a few minutes later, the pastor came out and opened the sanctuary door and it almost crashed into a stained glass window that separated the lobby from the auditorium. And he said, who moved the plant? <laughs> And I said, I don't know, Landry, you know, so, uh, but, <laughs> but uh, anyway, he had put that plant there and it stayed there for a reason because it blocked the door. It kind of acted as a doorstop. Now, I don't know why they didn't get a doorstop or put a doorstop on the hinge. A lot of other things they could have done besides putting a plant that appeared to be in the middle of the lobby, but it wasn't my church. And, and I didn't understand why it had been prepared for use that way. You ever feel that way about life? Well, God, if it were me, this is what I would do. <laughs> well, God, if it were me, I'd take this away, or I'd fix this, or I'd change that, right? But God, is, God has framed the worlds. In Ephesians, in Galatians 6, 1, we see this word, katertizo, used and translated restore. If a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. You know what the purpose of that is? To equip or prepare that person back for use again, Right? It's not punitive. We don't want to punish them. And, oh, you're bad. Look what you... It's, no, we want to come around you with spirit of gentleness and prepare you for use once again. So we go back to the text. That's what God is doing. He's working in us through the Holy Spirit to prepare us, to make us complete, to make us mature, like a fishing net being repaired so that we can accomplish His purpose in and through us. So, in other words, God's got this. You know, whatever you're facing, I know it's tough. I know it's painful. This is what was on the heart of the reader as you read through the letter. I know you're scared and hurting, but don't abandon the Lord. There is power in the presence of the triune God. Nothing surprises Him. None of this that these first century readers, or perhaps you today, are facing throws God off His game. He's preparing us. And so that's why the writer is able to give God all the praise and the glory. He concludes this prayer with, uh, To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So in this prayer, I think he's reminding us of the presence of God and the power that comes with us. He says, God the Father is with us. God the Son is with us. God the Holy Spirit is with us. There is power in his presence. When's the last time you felt the unmistakable presence of God in your life. I mean, is it possible? Have you considered that He's 
right here, right now, waiting to play out a beautiful symphony in your life, but you're overlooking him? You just need to give him the reins. Let him sit down, as it were, at the organ and let him play what he wants to play. So here's the takeaway. And this is what the Lord's been dealing with me about. Just embrace his presence and let God be God. I know that those are words, and it's very difficult sometimes to apply words in a life that seems out of control and in a world that seems out of control. But let God be God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this reminder at the end of this letter of, of really who you are and, and, and your presence with us. Lord, forgive us for taking that for granted. And Lord, help us to indeed embrace it. And Lord, I pray if there's one here today that maybe doesn't know you, there's never been a time that they've placed their trust in your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, as the only one who can forgive sin and give the gift of eternal life and save us because he died and rose again for us. I pray that today, uh, even now as I'm praying in simple faith, they would express their faith in you as the only one who can save them. And Lord, as believers, those who already know you, who've already placed their faith in you, help us to uh, recognize, acknowledge, and, and, and really embrace your presence, depend on it. Use the power that comes from knowing you that we might indeed have that perfect peace that passes all understanding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.